JustLiberty.org It's good for you and it's good for me JustLiberty.org JustLiberty.org Hi, I'm Amanda Marzullo. Scott, with Just Liberty's founding executive director, Shakira Pomfrey, being hired away by the new Texas House Speaker to work on criminal justice policy, you're now the group's new interim executive director. Has the power gone to your head yet? Why are you addressing me without kneeling? Explain yourself. And how dare you make eye contact? Obviously, you have no experience dealing with dignitaries of my high and esteemed station. What were they teaching you peons at Cambridge? <laughs> I, would, I would never argue that UK students are above peon status. Well, I'm trying, trying to keep that in mind, for heaven's sake. Hi, this is Scott Henson. You're listening to the January 2019 episode of Just Liberty's Reasonably Suspicious Podcast, covering Texas criminal justice, politics, and policy. I'm pleased as punch to be here today with our good friend Amanda Marzullo, who's the executive director of the Texas Defender Service, and whom I've decided as a fellow ED will be allowed to make eye contact with me for the duration of our show today. But only for the duration of the show today. Please, know your place, will you? Yeah, I, I would never deem to rise above it. How are you doing today, Mandy? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing well. Today's episode is chock full. We'll be talking about bail reform, bite marks, and bill filing at the Texas legislature, and lots more. Mandy, what are you looking forward to on the podcast today? Bite marks. Always bite marks, Scott. I was a biter as a child, and I'm a biter as an adult, man. Wow, that, that's maybe a little too much information, but all, all right then. <laughs> First up, though. As the Texas legislature gears up, we had important news last week out of all three Texas counties facing civil rights litigation over unconstitutional bail systems. In Houston, Harris County judges issued new rules to require indigent defendants to receive attorneys at bail hearings and limit most bail-eligible misdemeanor detentions to 48 hours. In Galveston, federal judge George Hanks dismissed the county's motion for summary judgment, ruling defendants could prevail and the suit could go forward. Hanks said the county must provide attorneys at bail hearings and stop incarcerating people just because they cannot pay. He also found that the district attorney, Jack Rohde, set and enforced the bail schedule used in Galveston and could be held individually liable for constitutional violations it caused. In Dallas, confusion and chaos reigned as county officials showed up for a court deadline without a consensus for how they'd meet the court's demands. Local judges don't want to use the public defender's office to represent indigent defendants at bail hearings, preferring to appoint individual attorneys themselves. All this occurs, the Texas legislature prepares to consider bail reform legislation, which is expected to be filed in the next few weeks. So, Mandy, what should listeners take away from recent developments in these cases? Ooh, well, there are many and varied, actually. I think uh, kind of going with the low-hanging fruit First, when it comes to Dallas County and the sort of assertion that the judges should be able to appoint individual attorneys to cases without paying attention to a wheel and without deference to the defender office, that's something that we've seen as being problematic for a long time in Texas and in capital cases. We've already seen it where judges are not required to appoint from a wheel. They're able to hand select attorneys for capital cases. And what we've seen is that they're appointing attorneys who move their cases quickly without 
necessarily vindicating the rights of their clients. This is sort of an unfortunate, unattended consequence of the Fair Defense Act, or I guess a, a loophole left over in the Fair Defense Act from 2001. Exactly. And there, we, we anticipate that there is legislation this session to address that so that, they, that there is deference given to the public defender office. In Dallas County, we do have a public defender office that is overburdened. They are not adequately staffed. But when it comes to capital cases, they still have a wonderful track record. And there is a reason why district courts should be allocating deference to them, and they are not. You know, I took from these three cases that there are essentially a couple of emerging requirements that counties are going to have to conform with. I feel like that the swirl of litigation with three different counties considering it and the legislature considering it, and it's being discussed in so many different venues, it's been hard to figure out exactly what's the most important question. What are going to be the pivotal issues that the legislature really has to implement to fix this problem once and for all so it'll be constitutional everywhere? And to me, there are two things that seem to be emerging in all three jurisdictions. One is it's pretty certain there's going to be a requirement to allow defendants to have an attorney appointed at bail hearings, that having bail hearings where that decision about their release is made without having access to an attorney is not going to be viable. Maybe if you're simply going to release them, you don't have to have an attorney up front. But if you're going to actually have a bail hearing and make that assessment, you're going to have to provide them with an attorney. Mm -hmm. And the, the second one is in Harris County, the judges have agreed to release most people, 85% of defendants, they said, and I think it was people who had bond revocations, repeat DWI, and domestic violence were the three exceptions. But beyond that, they said all other defendants, if they can't make bail, have to be released within 48 hours. And just so our listeners are aware, we're talking about misdemeanor allegations. That's exactly right. right. Like so, we're not talking about someone who's accused of murder necessarily. We're talking about only someone who is in the misdemeanor category. That's still. right. That's an important distinction. So, so in Harris County, they have said that misdemeanor defendants need to be released within 48 hours with those handful of exceptions. And it looks like those two requirements are really something that's bubbling up in all three jurisdictions. That if you were going to try and, and read tea leaves and estimate, okay, what are the things that it looks like the courts are circling around and headed towards doing? Those appear to be the two things that all three have in common. In 2018, Just Liberty and its allies led a successful campaign to install criminal justice reform planks into the platforms of both the Democratic and Republican parties. Podcast fans may recall Just Liberty created a short jingle to promote the campaign online. Just for fun, let's listen to it. Justice is blind, her hands are full, holding a sword and scales. She has no time for politics, that's why her foes prevail. Today, justice is threatened beyond reasonable doubt. So why not help an old blind lady out? Justice needs a platform, justice needs a platform. Free did I dee, did he do, did he dum. Justice needs a platform. 
justice needs a platform. Now that the 86th Texas legislature is in session, we get to find out whether bipartisan support from the two major political parties translates into bipartisan legislation at the Capitol. So Scott, tell us what bills we should expect this session that both parties have endorsed and what are their prospects? There is a lot of exciting stuff that has been endorsed by both political parties at this point. I think maybe the most high profile is probably reducing penalties for marijuana possession. I think most people would be shocked to learn that the Republican Party endorsed reducing penalties from a Class B misdemeanor to a civil penalty. Or those optimists that are out there were, were not shocked. Well, I, you know, I, maybe there are some. Um, I think most <laughs> folks who, who've heard that have really thought, wow, that's, that's, that's a surprising thing. I, then, I, I don't think so. Well, okay. I was starting to like be a jerk. Well, not I don't know. I, I am. I'm always a jerk. So how how is that different? But I I think that makes a lot of sense from a limited government standpoint. Right. Well, and and folks have been moving in that direction for a long, long time. Uh, national polling shows that that a majority support even full blown legalization. The Democratic Party actually endorsed full blown legalization in its platform. The Republican Party endorsed reducing penalties. And then to sort of complicate matters, Governor Greg Abbott endorsed a third idea, which was to reduce penalties from a class B to a class C misdemeanor, mm -hmm. which is the equivalent of what other traffic tickets might be. So whatever happens, it looks like there's a lot of momentum and a lot of support for reducing marijuana penalties. There were about 60,000 people arrested for low-level marijuana possession last year, and so that's a really big liberty issue. Other things that were included in both platforms, eliminating arrests for Class C misdemeanors. So Amen. Most so most traffic tickets and and all municipal ordinances, everything your your local government criminalizes, are all Class C misdemeanors, and the maximum punishment is a five hundred dollar fine. Yeah, so, so people, let's think about that. It's a five hundred dollar fine. That means no incarceration. So why would we be jailing people for something that does not result in incarceration as a punishment? Uh, that's exactly right. And what's really happened is be, the Supreme Court has said that officers can arrest for these things. And so it's usually a contempt of cop situation. It's something where, yeah, you were pulled over and it's a classy misdemeanor. Normally you would get a ticket, but you were rude and you said something that ticked off the cop. AKA, that's racism on the part who has pulled them over. Racism and also just reacting to... You know, folks in a negative way, someone asserts their rights. I'm not going to let them do it. And the law says the cop can just arrest on their discretion. And so both political parties have endorsed eliminating those arrests. And perhaps even more significant, I, I, that in, in and of itself is a very big deal. But both political parties endorsed ending arrest when people cannot afford to pay their Class C misdemeanor tickets. So if you get a traffic ticket or you're cited for a municipal ordinance and you can't pay, instead of it going to an arrest warrant and you being taken to jail the next time you're pulled over, mm -hmm. it would go to commercial collections, just like in 22 states that treat traffic citations as a civil citation. Mm -hmm. That's how it's done. 
and eventually the collections process might squeeze the money out of you, but no one is going to lock you up. We're not going to have a debtor's prison situation, and it would eliminate these annual warrant roundups where cops come around with a credit card swiper and knock on your door and say, I'll arrest you if you don't give me money right now. Yeah, well, so that, that's beneath police officers. That's not how we need to be using them. Yeah, I know that. That's beneath everyone. So both parties have endorsed eliminating the driver responsibility program. Um, both endorsed requiring a criminal conviction to seize assets, so asset forfeiture reform, adequately funding indigent defense. Oh, Re- I, I don't know why they would want to do that. It is quite remarkable that both parties have suggested that the state should fund indigent defense. That's that's a big deal. That's I, mean, not- I mean, it sounds like a big deal, but there are some of us who think like, wow, this is a constitutional right. <laughs> well, the question is, should the state fund it? Should the county fund yeah, it? I don't, I don't They're saying sh- the state should pay for it all. It's a big step. It would yeah, be. Yeah, I'm very proud of Texas <laughs> right now. There you go. And... Raising the age of criminal culpability from 17 to 18. We're one of only four states that that still prosecute 17-year-olds as adults. There's a platform plank that made it into both platforms that would require city councils or county commissioner's courts to sign off on law enforcement agencies receiving military equipment from the Department of Defense's 1033 program. Oh, yeah. So the... uh, pretty broad array of criminal justice reforms that both parties have endorsed but that's of course just the beginning of the process and and now we we look to see how many of those get filed as bills how many actually pass through but what an amazing moment when so many very significant criminal justice reform ideas have bipartisan support walking in the door and I can't really recall another moment quite like it no no I'm I am less impressed, but I am equally as excited. (laughs) All right, then. So Texas legislators began to file bills about a week after the election in November with dozens of criminal justice related bills filed already. So Scott, what's been filed so far that our listeners should be paying attention to? Well, there is likely to be a lot more of interest and we'll discuss a lot of that next month, I'm sure, when there have been more bills filed. But there have been some very interesting items filed so far that I thought we should we should mention and highlight. Tony Rose has filed House Bill 475, which changes some uh, very, very old pre-Civil War language that's sort of rooting in slave-catching practices about when law enforcement can arrest. And the law currently says that, that if they decide to form a posse, that, that citizens are required to participate. This is all uh, old holdover language from... Again, the sort of slave-catching era. And the law, as it's written, actually says that police officers must arrest, shall arrest, any time that they're aware of a criminal offense. Well, in practice, for years and years, courts have given police officers discretion to arrest. It's actually not the case anymore, as it, mm-hmm. as it purports in the law, that it's mandatory. There's a great deal of discretion. And so this law would would get rid of a lot of that antiquated pre-Civil War language 
and clarify that officers may arrest, that they actually do have discretion in the same way that in practice they do in the field. So I thought that was a fascinating change and something that really we can attribute to some of the movement for black lives activists sort of scouring through the statutes and sort of learning, okay, what are some of the bases for these laws that are racially discriminatory to this day? Well, it turns out they're rooted in these old weird slave catching practices that have distorted the law and continue to distort the law. I know. It's hats off to representative Rose. No, it's, it's a great bill. There's another one by Representative Thompson, which uh, similarly alters the use of force standard that applies to officers and requires that departments have a policy of de-escalation. Very, Mm. very big change. And her bill tracks what the national experts on police use of force are coming up with. The Police Executive Research Forum came up with best practices around use of force and de-escalation, and her bill is implementing that. And then finally, she has a bill that implements one of our platform planks that we talked about, the eliminating arrest for non-jailable offenses, House Bill 482. That one's very exciting. That was in the Sandra Bland Act that was Mm -hmm. filed last year. It was fought tooth and nail. The police unions are already coming out against it. And that's why it was pulled out last year. She's coming back and taking a much more serious run at it this Uh, go round. Yeah. But this is also a bill that has previously passed the legislature. Well, that's right. This bill passed in 2001, right after the Supreme Court originally said police officers can make these arrests. Texas said no, except for certain circumstances, we're going to eliminate them. And Rick Perry vetoed that back in the day. That yeah. was one of the earliest bills I worked on at the legislature. In fact. He, so, this, so this is a bill that has had over 18 years of consensus that's in exactly Texas right. that, that that should be the law except for whatever Rick Perry had said at the time. And listeners of the podcast should be aware that, you know, some, one of the dissents in that case, the Atwater dissents, you know, Scalia said, hey, life imprisonment for a parking ticket may be unconstitutional, but I'll take that case when it comes. Right, right. So they were really not worrying about the unintended consequences they, at all. They were expressly overlooking them. Yeah, Exactly. That, that, that is exactly what happened in the Atwater case. And so it is, you know, kind of a scourge upon the United States, if not Texas. That's right. And, and you also see in all of those opinions an assumption that, well, this doesn't happen very often. And what they didn't foresee is that Atwater basically was like a starting gun, that police began to use this as a pretext Mm-hmm. Um, in ways that they had not before once it had been approved. And so, for example, in Austin, where just this past year, the city council eliminated most Class C arrests, the local the police department was openly saying the reason we should be allowed to continue doing this is sometimes we may not be able to prove or mm-hmm. have probable cause that someone committed some other crime, but we can then arrest them on the Class C mm-hmm. and search their car. Well, that's exactly the kind of abuse of power that the Supreme Court said, well, it won't happen very often. They're now arguing it's an ongoing policy. It's the reason we should keep this is to give them this authority. Yeah, to continue to troll upon, you know, the privacy of private citizens. That's exactly right. So so this is an excellent bill. And 
and I expect it to, to get good bipartisan support. I hope so. Next up, our segment, Home Court Advantage, discussing the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals and issues facing the judiciary around the Lone Star State. In December, the Court of Criminal Appeals finally granted relief in a case evaluating bite mark evidence approving Stephen Cheney's habeas corpus writ and declaring him actually innocent in a hotly contested ruling. In that case, jurors believed in that case, jurors believed expert bite mark testimony over numerous alibi witnesses who the court majority now believes were telling the truth. The court sat on Cheney's writ for 4 years before issuing its decision, but when they finally ruled their judgment invalidated bite mark evidence in Texas criminal cases going forward and opened the door to challenges in old cases where bite mark evidence was central to the conviction. The case also featured Judge Sharon Keller calling for a new, more stringent standard for declaring defendants actually innocent, suggesting it be elevated from clear and convincing to beyond a reasonable doubt. So Mandy, tell our listeners about the Cheney case and the implications for both the court and forensic science issues going forward. Wow, so there's a lot to unpack here. When it comes to issues of forensics, I think the big communication to the lower courts is to conduct hearings on Daubert and to enter findings about whether the evidence, the forensic evidence proffered meets that evidentiary burden, that it's incumbent on the trial courts to make that type of determination instead of sort of rubber stamping whatever's proffered by the prosecution. Wow, you and I see this very, very differently. I actually see this as kind of an invalidation of the Daubert system entirely. And and, and frankly, when we first created the Junk Science Writ, that's, that's how that was seen too. I mean, my belief has always been that Daubert is completely inadequate in the criminal justice realm to keep bad evidence out of the courtroom. I think that in the, in the, the civil realm where both sides are actually well-funded and you have good lawyers and everybody has experts, you can keep bad evidence out there. But in the criminal realm, they just let it in because it's always been in. Now, the, the, the Court of Criminal Appeals under a, uh, a front-end Daubert challenge and had reaffirmed bite mark evidence as recently as 2012. And the idea behind the junk science writ was Okay, if you're not going to keep it out on the front end, on the back end, let's provide some means to challenge it. And then once it's invalidated, you still can't use that going forward after that. And that's what's happened here. Well, uh, well, they can't well, use think... the junk science. They can't use bite mark evidence now going forward. And now there will be a basis to go look at the old cases. Yes and no. I think that. Part of what's happening is that now that we've had sort of a demonstration that the evidence that is let in on the criminal realm is clearly doesn't pass muster in in the habeas realm, that it is a calling upon trial courts to new vigilance. And I think part of the problem that you just demonstrate in your comparison between civil courts and criminal ones is part of the problem is that there really shouldn't be a distinction between the two. 
Well, forensic science is just a bizarre thing. It's, uh, most of it is not science at all. Most of it are just things that cops who are not scientists just began doing to try and convict people. So like, fingerprint comparison, ballistics comparison, blood spatter evidence. No scientist came up with any of those things. There's no science involved. There's no scientific method applied to them. There's things that 100 years ago cops started doing so they could accuse someone, and the courts let it in, and then future courts said, oh, the last court let it in, and so there's precedent, so I'll let it in too. And we've done it over and over and over. Yeah, and then the, and that over time these things have snowballed, and I think that Part of the lesson from Cheney is that courts should just have a common sense application to the evidence that's in front of them, regardless of the nature of the proceedings. And that if they wouldn't let it in in a civil proceeding, they sure as hell shouldn't let it in in a criminal one. I hope that that's the case. You know, Peter Newfeld said to me once that when you have an illness and you go to the doctor for a diagnosis and they run a blood test, the result of that blood test is going to be the same whether it's performed in Maine or whether it's performed in Houston. But that's not the case with forensic science at all. A lot of this stuff is very subjective and it's very dependent on which analyst looks at it or which lab looks at it or, or what which, standards they're using. And hopefully over time we get to a point where the, the information that is also provided to the scientists that are performing these tests is also controlled. I think that's part of the problem. That we've been seeing in Texas. And that's certainly the case in the bite mark evidence where some of these analysts actually brag that they've seen all this other evidence about the case and that helped corroborate it. Well, that's that's the opposite of what it should be doing, really. You should not see any of that. You should be looking at it independently and only evaluating the comparisons between these two items. They're, you shouldn't have the context for the other. But uh, now let, let's talk real quick about just to pivot Judge Keller's remarkable concurrence where she suggests that we should alter the standard for actual innocence in Texas. What did you think about that? Well, I, I mean, I agree with, well, unsurprisingly, I agree with Judge Alcala's concurrence, which responds to that. Which well, sure, that's probably why you hired her, I'm yeah. guessing. <laughs> Listeners should know that I did not know about this concurrence at the time that I made a job offer to Judge Elsa Alcala, who is a wonderful person. And who, by the way, just for clarification, is going to lobby on behalf of the Texas Defender Service at the Texas legislature this time for criminal justice reform. It's really big great news and congratulations by the way that was really a coup to get her to do that i am extremely grateful to judge elsa alcala for coming aboard but aside from that i think judge alcala and richardson both make excellent points in their concurrences that this is a herculean standard to begin with and not so much from judge keller's concurrence doesn't make too many points aside from, you know, citing concerns that the Court of Criminal Appeals should be basically declaring people not guilty, in so many words, as opposed to actually innocent. And it's really Judge Yeary's concurrence where he sort of talks about intrigue from these ideas from Judge Keller and points to an analogy between a jury declaring someone not guilty and the Court of Criminal Appeals declaring someone entitled to habeas relief. And the problem is, is that that analogy just doesn't hold muster over time. You're dealing with two people who have had different levels of process against them that if a jury acquits someone 
of the charges against them. That is someone who has not been incarcerated. That's right. And that's a signal to the world that this person didn't do it. Yeah. You know, a jury could not find that they did it. That's right. Whereas, you know, someone who is subsequently incarcerated, declared guilty, incarcerated, and then entitled to habeas relief after a after the fact, that is someone who has incurred a different level of harm from the criminal justice system. And that is someone who should be entitled to a greater level of relief. I, I have to admit, I was a little disappointed in Judge Keller's concurrence. I, I understand where it's coming from. I've read her views over the years, and so I, I'm not that surprised, but I was disappointed. I feel like that she's engaged in a process of moving the goalposts here. At the time that they approved the Elizondo opinion, mm-hmm. which is what established Texas' actual innocence standard, I think everyone on the courts believed that it would actually be rarely used. In the decision, they said that you would have to meet this, Herc- they called it a Herculean standard to mm-hmm. meet it. And for the first few years, that's exactly how it was treated. You might get relief, but very few people got actual that's innocence innocent. relief. Well, the first thing that happened was the DNA cases showed up and there were dozens and dozens of DNA cases mm-hmm. where, in fact, you really could meet that Herculean standard. All of a sudden, there really were actually innocent people. And then we passed the junk science writ. And once you pulled the junk science out of some of these old convictions, you started to see more cases like Cheney's where absent the bad forensic evidence... There's no basis at all to find any culpability here. And this person is actually, actually innocent. Mm-hmm. In Cheney's case, there were nine alibi witnesses that the jury disbelieved in favor of the bite mark evidence. Well, Judge Keller is now wanting to move the goalpost because quite a few people are able to meet that Herculean standard now. She wants to now say, well, let's change it. So just like I originally wanted, very few people will ever get to actually benefit from, from relief here. And, you know, often I have uh, called the faction of the court Judge Keller leaves or, or leads. The government always wins faction. And there's there's four of them on there that essentially side with the prosecution mm-hmm. nearly all the time. Two of them split with Judge Keller here. And that was a very significant aspect of this decision. Except that the government sided with the inmate in this case. And that's what I, that was my point is that normally I, I have labeled her as part of the government always wins faction. This puts a different light on this because the prosecution actually sided with the defendant. They mm-hmm. said, you deserve actual innocence relief here. And I think the reason I was disappointed is that I felt like judge Keller's opinion wasn't just about, I want the government to win, which is her usual position. She really wanted Stephen Cheney to lose. Mm-hmm. She really wanted him to not get relief, to not be declared actually innocent, to not be compensated. I don't even think she would say that it's not relief, right? She thinks that lifting the conviction is enough. Right, right. But But she didn't want him to benefit from any compensation. That was important to her which is in a way that seemed just a little too negative, a little too harsh, a little too personal. Yeah. And from those those lawyers who are listening, probably not far enough, right? That, you know, when it comes to tort law, right? When you sue somebody, you're you're trying to be made whole. And that failing to recognize Cheney's innocence on the part of the state would be failing to make him whole. It would maybe put him where he was 
if the state hadn't incarcerated him post-judgment. Except they did. But they said they did, exactly. And that, you know, he clearly would have lost his job. He lost his contact with his he family. He lost more than we can ever imagine. That's and, what he lost. When you're incarcerated for a crime you did not commit, you have lost more than anyone who's not been in that situation can ever imagine. The show's already pretty full, but there's a lot to talk about. So let's play a quick game of fill in the blank so we can discuss some of the issues Scott just couldn't bear to keep off the list. Starting with funding for prisoner health care in the Texas Department of Criminal Justice. TCJ says it needs $247 million more in its healthcare budget just to provide present levels of services. However, the Texas House allotted only an additional $160 million for prisoner health care in its filed version for its budget, while the Senate actually cut funding by $1.3 million. So Scott, fill in the blank. If legislatures don't want to pay more for prisoner health care, they should. They should incarcerate fewer people. This is now the new normal. We now, every session, are going to see nine-figure increases in prisoner health care costs. $150 million, $250 million. Every biennium, we're going to see this much of an increase unless the Texas legislature chooses to reduce the number of people incarcerated. There is no more cutting. We have done all of the cutting to the bone that we possibly can. They have tried to get prisoners' families to pay for inmate health care by taking money out of their commissary accounts. That didn't bring in nearly the amount of money that they had anticipated that it would when they passed the rule. There's nothing else they can do to reduce these increases in health care spending except provide health care for fewer people. Mm. And and that's just where we are now. If they want to pretend otherwise, what we've been doing the last few sessions is underfunding health care, mm-hmm. often by, again, $160 million last time, a couple hundred million next time maybe. And then they come back to the beginning of the next legislative session and have what's called a supplemental budget, which is all the things that they'd underfunded the last mm-hmm. time. It's been in the nine figures, biennium after biennium after biennium. They underfund health care, come back and have to pay some huge sum at the beginning of every session, and then underfund it again the next go-round. Yeah. So that's where we've been. It's not a solution. If you don't want to pay the money, incarcerate fewer people. Yeah. And, and, and my alternative for that is just to expand Medicaid. That if you're not going to incarcerate fewer people, you should make medical care available to a bigger purview of people. Well, and for starters, uh, if they expanded Medicaid, it would pay for inpatient hospital care for Texas prisoners, Mm -hmm. which is something that right now Texas taxpayers pay for 100%. The feds would pay for 90% of those inpatient hospital costs if we expanded Medicaid. The other big things are mental health care and uh, drug treatment, Both expanding both of those through Medicaid where you can access it 
without having to go through the criminal justice system would be a big thing. So your, yours is probably a smarter solution than mine. Mine's just the, oh, my God, we can't keep paying for this. Let's have fewer people so we don't pay for all their health care. Yeah, but, yeah, I mean, but expanding Medicaid would probably be the smarter method. Probably my method may be the more politically viable, more politically possible in, in 2019. Who knows? Who knows? I hope not, but you're probably right. In Congress, during the lame duck session, the First Step Act passed with overwhelming bipartisan support. The first prison reform legislation approved by Congress in a generation. Mandy, fill in the blank. Passage of the First Step Act should encourage Texas legislatures to pass their own version of this legislation. TDS has been working with members of the Texas legislature to develop our own version of this legislation, which would allow individuals to be resentenced according to new provisions of the law based on consent of not only the prosecution, the defense, but also the trial court who presided over someone's conviction. That's an awesome idea. No, no, it is an awesome idea. And it also comes with a more streamlined approach than the First Step Act. Yeah, the First Step Act reconsideration was very bureaucratic and had a lot of sort of new systems and stuff they had to implement. Yeah, no, exactly. It had its own commission that would be reviewing these sentences. There was a lot of red tape entailed. In our case, we're talking about local control. If you're able to have consent from the prosecution, and we're talking about the same office that pursued someone's conviction in sentence, is able to consent to someone's resentencing. We're not even talking about acquittal or necessarily being released under the law. We're talking about just a simple resentencing. Then someone can be resentenced. It's a, it's, it's a, that's a really cool idea. You no. know, and it's one that I am very, very proud of in terms of its elegance. It, it, that is a great solution. And, and it's great to take some of these ideas in the First Step Act and say, hey, how can we implement some of these in Texas? How can we take some of these bipartisan reforms that we've already seen get momentum at the federal level and implement here? I, I completely love it. I would say that passage of the First Step Act should encourage Texas legislators to support criminal justice reform if you want to align yourself with the president in the next election. Yeah. With the new uh, House majority for the Democrats at the federal level, the First Step Act may well be the last piece of legislation President Trump signs before (laughs) before the next election. So so our Texas version of that by implication, is even stronger. There you go. And, and, And even more broadly, I think that we can see that criminal justice reform is going to be one of the things the president is running on during his reelection campaign. And Republicans, I think, are given a big incentive here to follow suit and to find criminal justice reform that they can support here, whether that's mm-hmm. Governor Abbott's suggestion to reduce penalties for low-level marijuana offenses or the Texas Public Policy Foundation's suggestions for how to reduce state jail incarceration. I think that the president sort of coming out so strongly in favor of criminal justice reform does show that folks who want to align themselves with his agenda going Mm -hmm. forward really ought to get on the train. That's what I would take from that. 
Hopefully. So last one, Austin Police Chief Brian Manley held a press conference at the end of the day on New Year's Eve to reveal results of a Department of Public Safety audit. The review was commissioned after a whistleblower, a former Austin PD sergeant, alleged in a national podcast that she was removed as a head of the sex crimes unit for refusing to fudge clearance rate results. Chief Manley said the audit didn't evaluate the whistleblower's claims, but that's not entirely true. The DPS confirmed that the deposed sergeant classified cases correctly and that the agency began to misrepresent clearance rate after she left. Chief Manley now says a third party will independently evaluate APD sexual assault cases to make sure that they were cleared properly and that no one will face discipline for misclassifying cases. So Scott, fill in the blank. Austin and I should feel blank about the police chief's handling of this episode. They should feel disappointed. Honestly, he has mishandled this absolutely from the get-go. He started by blaming the victims and claiming that all this was happening because victims were refusing to cooperate with police. That turned out to be 100% false. The police department was miscategorizing these cases, and those victims, in fact, had not refused to to cooperate. He he was openly misstating their positions, Mm -hmm. and honestly, he owes them an apology. I really feel like he will not have begun to rectify the situation until he admits I was wrong to blame rape victims for not participating with the investigation. It was a lie. He he told it for self-interested reasons. He should never have said it. And now he should apologize. It was absolutely awful. Beyond that, the idea that you're going to get the results from this DPS audit on December 13th and you're going to wait until 4.45 in the afternoon on New Year's Eve to release mm-hmm. these results at a press conference is absolutely disingenuous. It is just malfeasance. I can't believe... This This frankly is something where if I were on the city council, I would be out for this guy's head at this point, or I would really want an explanation if not. That's just bad faith. That's mm-hmm. just trying to play hide the ball. And to this day, he is not actually owning up to his responsibility. He is insisting that that somehow they didn't do anything wrong. Oh, the DPS didn't say anything about the whistleblower, you know, who was right or who was wrong. Well, you've already admitted it all. You admitted she was removed because she wouldn't use your definition. Mm -hmm. The only question was, was she right or was you right about what is the right definition? We now know for a fact it was her. She was right. You were wrong. You removed her from her job for trying to use the correct definition. And now you're wanting to pretend that somehow, oh, you couldn't have known. No, no, this was this was a bad act. This was a bad thing. And I know that Art Acevedo, the prior police chief, is really the person who did that. He's the person who pressured her out. And he's now police chief in Houston. And that's the person who told this person, you have to fudge these numbers or we're going to replace you. She took a principled stand and said no, and so he did. He got rid of her and replaced her. He's now in Houston. But Chief Manley's response to this scandal has made the scandal his own. 
Him blaming the victims and then refusing to accept accountability to me is just about as bad as it gets. And he really needs to have some big mea culpas very, very soon where he owns the responsibility here. Or I don't know that if I were on the city council, I would continue to support him being police chief. No, no, no. Thank you, Scott. I don't think there's much to add to this. Now it's time for our rapid fire segment we call The Last Hurrah. Mandy, are you ready? I'm ready. First, in Sugarland, the county seat of Fort Bend County, named for the Imperial Sugar Company that dominated the area's economy for decades, authorities discovered 95 graves of African Americans employed by the company in convict leasing arrangements who were buried where they dropped instead of entombed in an adjacent graveyard reserved for whites. Mandy, what does this dark and hidden history tell us 100 years later? This is just a window into the inhumanity of our prison system and its origins. And, you know, it's, it's something to think about as we assess our prison system going forward. Next, the Forensic Science Commission in December said that field tests for drugs used by hundreds of Texas police departments have high error rates, but declined to suggest banning them because they're commonly used and science has developed no alternative. So Scott, was that the right conclusion? I think that was a really terrible suggestion. They basically concluded, yes, these field tests are junk science. They have high error rates that are causing people to be falsely arrested and convicted. And then said we should keep using them because there's no alternative with lower error rates. Why not just stop using the junk science like the Houston PD did and let the chips fall where they may? Why do we have to have a replacement before we can stop using something that we know science doesn't support? All right, last one. Activists in Austin are in an uproar because the county sheriff is withholding evidence in an inmate's death, invoking what the press has called the dead suspects loophole in the Public Information Act, which lets law enforcement withhold records in cases that were never prosecuted, whether because the suspect died or some other reason. Mandy, is there any good reason the public shouldn't see these records just because prosecutors couldn't secure a conviction? No, it doesn't make any sense. Doesn't, I, I can't think of any justification to withhold this evidence whether someone is actually suspected of a crime at the time of their death or not. All right, we're out of time, but we'll try and do better the next time. Until then, I'm Scott Henson. And I'm Amanda Marzullo. Goodbye, and thanks for listening. You can subscribe to the Reasonably Suspicious Podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud. We'll be back next month with more, hopefully better news. Until then, keep fighting for criminal justice reform. It's the only way it's going to happen. A special shout out to the Honorable Elsa Alcala, formerly a member of the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals, who is now TDS's policy director. And also to Shakira Pumphrey, my former boss, who's now moved on to the Texas House Speaker's office. Congratulations, and it'll be difficult to fill your shoes.
Champion. Justice needs a champion. Justice needs a champion.